This time we're going to see Christ in the writings of Moses, and we're just going to kind of go book by book. Now the first book that comes up is the Exodus. Exodus, the exit. What is happening is God is going to deliver his people from under the bondage of Egypt. What came into Egypt as a family is going to be brought out as a nation, just as God had promised Abraham. And so as we come into the book of, of Exodus, one of the first ways that we see Christ in Exodus is right at the beginning. It takes up about 10, 11 chapters, and it's, and it's through the deliverance. God sends Moses to go and deliver his people out from under the bondage of Egypt. And you know what? That is a picture for us of Christ, because God would send his own son to deliver us from the bondage that we have to sin. And all those pictures, when we get to the history books, we're going to be looking at the judges a little bit. And what was a judge? A judge for Israel was a deliverer, somebody that would come and deliver them from their enemies. And that's what God does. There's just a whole pattern through the Old Testament of God delivering His people from their enemies. That's a picture for us of Christ. So when He came, He would deliver us from our enemy being Satan, our enemy being sin and death. And He would come to deliver us from that. So in Exodus, we see the, the deliverance of God's people as a picture of Christ. God gives a very vivid picture, and that is in the Passover. If you remember, there were ten different plagues that he would send upon the Egyptians. He would tell Moses, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses would tell him. Pharaoh would say, no. He said, who is this God that I should obey him? And so a plague would happen. And then Pharaoh would say, okay, I'll let you go. So they would take off the plague. And then Pharaoh would say, never mind, I changed my mind. And then he'd bring another plague. And then he'd say, okay, I'll let you go. He'd take off the plague. Nah, I changed my mind. You can't go. This happens nine times. And finally it gets to the tenth time and God says, now they're going to pay you to leave. This last plague is the death of the firstborn. All the firstborn in Egypt are going to die. He says, but to protect the Israelites. So this is what you do. You go through your house and you clean out all the leaven. Leaven is always a symbol of sin. And then he says, you take this lamb, which is going to be the Passover lamb, and you sacrifice this, this lamb, and that's what you're going to eat tonight. And they were to take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of their houses. And God said this, he said, when I come through Egypt on that night, when I see the blood, I will pass over that house in judgment. In other words, I won't stop there in, ju in judgment. I will pass over it. All the Israelites did this. They took the lamb, they sacrificed it, they put the blood over the doorpost, and when God came by, he saw the blood on the door, he passed over us in judgment. You know what? That is a very clear picture of what we have in Christ. When Jesus came, he came and he shed his blood on that cross for us. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, his blood covers us. And when we've come to judgment time where we stand before God, we are under the blood. We are passed over. Our judgment has already happened in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we're covered. We're passed over. And that's exactly why in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, it says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He says, look, cleanse your life. Why? Because we are unleavened in Christ. We really are clean in Christ. Why are we clean in Christ? Because he's our Passover. There are several other things in the book of Exodus that speak of Christ as well. Uh, when you get to chapter 16, the Israelites are given manna in the wilderness. Manna, they didn't even know what it was. Best we can tell, it's some kind of a bread-like substance because that's what they kind of call it later on. And in the New Testament, it refers to it as bread. 
the word manna actually means what is it? That's what they called it. They didn't know what it was, so they named it what is it. It was a miraculous way that God provided for them. They're out there in the wilderness, which what, what, are, what can you eat in the desert? Not much. And so God provided for them this manna. Every morning it would be laying on the ground. He wanted them to trust Him in this. So He said, go pick up just enough for the day. No more. They had to trust Him that He was going to have it there again the next day. Some of them didn't trust Him. So they go out to pick up the manna. Some of them picked up enough for the next day too. And you know what happened? That stuff rotted. But the next morning there was manna everywhere. So He just threw that stuff away and there it was. So they learned. Just take enough for the day. That happened six days a week except for, remember the Sabbath, they're not supposed to do any work. And so God said, on Friday, pick up twice as much. Pick up enough for Friday and Saturday. And you know what happened every week? When they picked up enough and they kept it over till Saturday, none of it rotted. It stayed good. So, so even the way that God gave them the manna was, was very miraculous. The Jewish people would say to Jesus, what sign do you show? Which was uh, phenomenal because Jesus had already been healing people, doing extraordinary things. If you think about a guy that can walk on water, a guy that can uh, feed over 5,000 people with one boy's lunch, a guy that can calm the storm, cast out demons, cleanse lepers, make deaf people hear, blind people see, the lame walk. All these different miracles turn water into wine. So he, he shows that he has power over the physical elements, over health, over the spiritual world, and casting out demons, over life itself. And they turn to him and they say, well, give us a sign, why don't you? <laughs> Are you kidding me? And, but, the, but then you know what they say? They say, Moses gave us bread in the wilderness. What do you got? And you know what? In John chapter 6, in verses 30 through 33, says, So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You guys are just looking at the surface. The bread in heaven was just a picture of the true life that's going to come from heaven that my Father gives. He says, it wasn't Moses that gave it to you. It was God that gave it to you. It was my Father that gave it to you. Moses could do nothing like this. But Jesus says that bread was just a picture. When you think about it, what was that bread to them? It was life. Out in the wilderness, they were right when they complained about one thing. If they don't get something to eat, they are going to die in the wilderness. But of course, God is not going to go to all that effort to deliver them out of Egypt and then let them die in the wilderness. So that bread was life. Jesus says that bread is a picture of me. God was giving you life in the wilderness. He's giving me to you for life. He would not only use their, the bread that he would give them, but he would use the water that he gave them as well. If you remember, during that time, God miraculously gave them water as well as the bread. At a place named Meribah, we find out about it in Exodus chapter 17, and just the next chapter after the manna. And we also read about it happening again in Numbers chapter 20. But what happens is the Israelites again complain, did you bring us out here in the wilderness to kill us, for us to die in the wilderness, because we're going we're gonna to die of thirst. And God tells Moses to do something fantastic. He tells him to go up to this rock and take your staff and strike the rock and the rock will provide water. And it did. And they drink. Now, later on, there's another part of the picture. That's what Moses ends up being kept out of the promised land for this. Because the children of Israel are again thirsty and God tells Moses, go back to the rock. But this time, don't hit it. Only speak to the rock and it'll give you the water. 
when he goes back to the rock, he starts getting angry. And he doesn't just speak to the rock. He actually takes a staff and he hits the rock twice this time. Hitting the rock. And God in His mercy gives him the water, out gushes the water, and plenty of water for everybody, no problem there. But then afterwards he tells Moses, you didn't believe me. You didn't do what I told you to do. Because of this, you're not going into the promised land. You didn't honor me before the people. And you know, when you first look at that, you think, are you really? Moses does one thing. He just gets angry with those guys and hits the rock. And he gets kept out of the promised land. Why? What's the big deal? You see what he did is he ruined the picture that God was making of Christ. And just to show you that I'm not making this stuff up, the New Testament points to this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the first four verses, he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So you see, the New Testament even looks back at the Old Testament with them going through the sea and being covered by the cloud and the parting of the sea. uses that as an illustration of baptism that was pointing toward our baptism in Christ. But in verse 3 it says, And all ate the same spiritual food, again alluding to the manna, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Just like the manna. What is the water to them? It's life in the desert. Without, without the water, there's no life. And he says that rock was Christ. It was a picture of Christ. Now when you think about it, the particulars with Moses become very important. Because Moses goes to the rock the first time. Strike the rock. The Bible tells us that Christ was smitten for our transgressions. But he only suffered for our sins one time. He went to the cross one time, not repeatedly. So the next time around when Moses comes to the rock, if he hits the rock again, it's showing Christ suffering repeatedly through time for our sins. And he does not suffer repeatedly through time for our sins. He suffered once for all. Remember when we went through Hebrews chapters 8, 9, and 10? He kept repeating that once and for all. And so now when Moses comes to the rock this time, this time he's only supposed to speak to the rock. When I came to Christ, Christ didn't have to come down and be crucified again for me. When I came to Christ, I just had to ask him for it. I just had to recognize my need for that living water for him and ask him to be that for me. You see, it's a beautiful picture of Christ, but Moses, by hitting the rock the second time, God did something severe, I think mainly to let everybody know this is not how it works. It doesn't work through Christ getting smitten repeatedly. It works through Christ getting smitten for our sins one time. After that, we just ask for it. The Bible tells us Christ is that rock. That was just a picture of the reality that God wanted us to see, the sustenance, the life that we get from Christ as He would send His Son to be our Savior. We see Jesus in the book of Exodus through the deliverance that Israel would experience from out from under Egypt, through the Passover that they would celebrate as God delivered them through the blood of the Passover lamb, through the manna that God provided for them in the wilderness, the life, through the water that God would miraculously provide for them in the wilderness, again, that life uh, that He would give them in these miraculous ways. Leviticus. Well, as we look at Leviticus, the main thing that we see in Leviticus is the priesthood. 
There's a lot about the priests, a lot about the tabernacle, just about that whole system of of the sacrifices and the detail of the sacrifices. And you could go all over the New Testament for this. We're just going to use one passage. In Hebrews chapter 8, verses 4 and 5, uh, speaking of the priesthood, it says, Now if he were on earth, talking about Jesus, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. And remember, they were a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And we're not going to spend a lot of time in this because we actually touched on this a little bit last week. But one thing that you get from it as you read through those passages is that there's a lot of detail. There's a lot of repetition on exactly what the sacrifices were to be, the clothing the priests were to wear, how the tabernacle was to be made. All of these things had a lot of detail in them and a lot of repetition. So God obviously wanted it just a certain way and very often. But the Bible tells us God had showed Moses a pattern. This is the pattern that I want you to make the tabernacle off of. This is a pattern. And that's what those things were. The priesthood, the sacrifices, the tabernacle. It was all a a pattern. It was a copy. It was a shadow. It, It was a picture of what Christ would do for us. And so we see the priesthood. But then not only that, we also see their feasts. In the book of Leviticus, it spells out the feasts. The feasts also picture Christ. Um, as we look at in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, it says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in, in questions of food or drink or in regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Remember we read this last week in dealing with the Sabbath day. It says, These are a shadow of the things that come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The point is that this passage isn't just referring to the Sabbath day. It is referring to all of their holidays, all of their feasts. And it says concerning all of these things that these were still a shadow, a picture of Christ, but Christ is the substance. Christ is the reality. In fact, when you read in Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul tells those people, you guys are making me nervous. I'm afraid that I've, I've labored in vain on you. And the reason is because they went back to celebrating these feasts again, which actually isn't a problem. Except they were becoming legalistic about it. That these feasts were a way for them to achieve a good standing before God. And the Apostle Paul says, Christ is the only way to have that good standing before God. The only way we're right with God is through Christ. Everything else just pictured Him. Everything else just prepared us for Him. Now, let's take just a quick look at the feasts of Israel. They had four feasts that were in the spring. And they were really close, like bam, 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 almost like uh, like Christmas Eve and Christmas, <laughs> one day after another. And they had three feasts that were in the fall of the year. Now, some people think that all of the feasts in the spring of the year have already been fulfilled in Christ. In fact, it's very interesting. They were fulfilled on the feast day, each one of them. But the feasts in the fall time of the year, the last three, are yet to be fulfilled They will be fulfilled when he returns. Uh, I have to confess, I don't quite see it that way. I think that a couple of them at the end are also fulfilled in his first coming. We'll explain that when we get there. But in Leviticus 23, verse 5, we have the Passover. We've already dealt with the Passover, so I'm just going to leave it at that. But at the Passover, it is interesting that it was at the Passover time that Christ was crucified. As the Passover lamb, he was sacrificed right at that time for our sins. So he fulfilled that Passover feast. 
Secondly, we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Just as I mentioned already with the Passover, leaven was always a symbol of sin. So eating unleavened bread was something that they would do as a symbol of being cleansed, purified before God. And Christ also fulfills that in that in his righteousness, the fact that he is righteous, the righteous offering. Remember, all their lambs had to be without spot, without blemish. They had to be completely healthy, not crippled. And Jesus Christ is that spotless lamb. Passover was on uh, the 14th of the first month. 15th of the month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So at the point of unleavened bread, when Christ was here, he was in the grave for the first couple days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then the very next day on the 16th was the Feast of the first fruits, And this is where they celebrate, obviously what it says, the first fruits, the very beginning of, some, of, a, of one of their harvest times. And they would recognize more to come. That was the whole point of first fruits. You take the very first part of your crop and you offer that to God, saying, God, we know that there's more to come. Well, it's interesting because the first fruits would be taken by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is the resurrection chapter. And in the resurrection chapter, in verse 20, it says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's pretty awesome. Jesus Christ rose from the dead on this day, the day of their holiday, their feast day of the first fruits. And so Jesus is the first fruits from among the dead. So what does that say to us? It's the guarantee, just like first fruits, the, the actual Hebrew term meant more to come. And so as they celebrated that, what is the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It's a guarantee. The Apostle Paul says it's the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. In other words, what does it guarantee? More to come. Just as Jesus Christ rose again from the dead as the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead, it guarantees our resurrection of the dead. But then the Feast of Weeks, or what, we, what is also called Pentecost. Pentecost because it's 50 days after the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Pentecost was a, a harvest time, looking at the, the wheat harvest. And with that blessing of the wheat coming in and that kind of thing, it kind of pictured, I guess, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Because that's what happened on that day. When Pentecost arrives, Jesus had told the disciples, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high, till the coming of the Holy Spirit. And when they were assembled in the temple on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came in a dynamic way and fulfilled that feast as well. Then we go on from there, uh, trumpets. Trumpets is in, this is the first of the feasts that happened in the fall. Probably the most clear thing that it symbolizes is this, is the rapture when Christ comes back again. And the reason that we would point to this is because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52, it says, In a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. So the blowing of the trumpets that God commanded at the Feast of Trumpets, there will be a trumpet that will sound when Christ returns the second time. And then also in 1 Thessalonians, it says the same thing. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And so the trumpet sounding is one of the signs for the return of Christ. 
And then we get to the Day of Atonement. This was the one day of the year that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with the sacrifice that he was offering up for the nation of Israel to atone for their sins. Now this is where we get to the part where I kind of disagree with the division. Because some people think that, well, that refers to later. That refers, the Day of Atonement refers to when Israel, when Jesus comes back, and the Bible says Israel will look upon Him whom they have pierced. In other words, Israel will finally realize that Christ is their Messiah, and they will put their faith and trust in Him. But I, this one I think is weak. I think that the Day of Atonement seems pretty clearly to be when Jesus died on that cross for us. The Day of Atonement was when the high priest would bring the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies. We know that when Jesus went to the cross, that was our high priest bringing the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, bringing it into the true tabernacle in heaven, the thing that all, that all pictures. But then also we have the tabernacle, booths. This lasted a week. Israel did this to commemorate the time when they wandered in the wilderness. For a week they would all live in tents. And it was to remember that time in the wilderness when... All of Israel lived in tents and they camped with God. When Jesus Christ comes back, He's going to dwell with us again. We're going to have the millennium, the thousand year reign of Christ on this earth. And so we're going to reign and rule for a thousand years. And that's absolutely true. I'm pretty sure this points to that. But I think it also points to something else. And you know what? That's common in the Bible. In fact, in the New Testament, we live in a time period which they kind of identify as being already but not yet. In other words, we have some of the fulfillment, some of the promises that are fulfilled in Christ that we experience already. We have a taste of them in the giving of the Holy Spirit, but we don't have all of it yet. We're part of the kingdom, but we're not living in the kingdom. We have a taste of the Holy Spirit, but not what we're going to have in the end. The Bible says the Holy Spirit is just a down payment for all that's coming later. I think we see the same thing in this feast, because in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen His glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word translated dwelt right there literally means tabernacle. So saying the Word, talking about Jesus Christ, became flesh and tabernacled among us. The tabernacle was, and the Holy of Holies within that tabernacle was the symbol of the very presence of God and the Shekinah glory of God resting upon the Holy of Holies. That was how they experienced the presence of God. It's exactly what he says Jesus is. He came and he tabernacled among us. He lived among us. And we beheld his glory just as they beheld the glory of the Shekinah glory. We beheld the glory of the Son of God, Christ When you start looking at the feast, some of these holidays are so clear in their portrayal of what Christ would do for us. Well, that brings us to the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers, we see several things. One of them is the camp arrangement. Whenever the glory of God would move from one place to place, they would hurry up and take down the tabernacle, which is basically God's tent. That's what the word tabernacle means, is tent. And they would carry it on to wherever God leads them, and then they would set it back up again. Well, God was very specific. He wanted certain tribes to be to the west of him, and he wants certain tribes to be to the east of him. And he wants certain tribes to be to the north of him, and certain tribes to be to the south of him. And so he had three tribes to the east, three to the west, three to the north, three to the south. Now think about it. What does that do? It puts God right in the middle. He's right in the center of his family. His tent is the middle. And that's what it would be. The tabernacle for then, the temple for later, would all be the center of Jewish social life. 
the center of everything that they believed, everything that they did. That was their that was their center. And you know what? That's when you look at what's going on in the temple again with the sacrifices, with the priesthood, Christ, the very center. But then also we see the bronze serpent. Once again, Israel rebelled against God, and this time God sent venomous snakes into the camp as a judgment against their sin. And so people began to get bit, and they began to get sick, and they began to die. But at the same time, God always judges, does this. At the same time that he flooded the earth, he had Noah built an ark for deliverance. At the same time he judged Sodom and Gomorrah, he pulled out Lot and his family. God always sends with his judgment a way of salvation. And God, so God sends this judgment upon Israel, the venomous snakes, to come into their camp. But at the same time, he gives them a way of salvation. And you know what it was? He goes to Moses and he says, make a bronze snake and wrap it around your staff. And you hold that staff up. And this is the deal. When anybody gets bit by a snake, they can go to where that staff is. And all they have to do is look at it. If they just look at it, they'll be healed. Can't get much easier than that. But that's all they had to do. Go look at it. Jesus in John chapter 3 had been in a very interesting discussion with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a religious person, a teacher, the teacher of Israel, Jesus called him. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, we know that you have to be from God. Nobody can do the things you do unless God's with them. Jesus says, unless you're born again, you'll not see the kingdom of heaven. That floored Nicodemus. He said, wait, wait, wait. what do you mean? Did a man enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus says, no, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Nicodemus, in all of his morality and all of his religion, was not good enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to be born again. Nicodemus is totally confused. What does this mean? Jesus says, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? And then he tells him, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You see, Nicodemus says, I don't understand these things. Jesus says, well, don't you remember what Moses did? Just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, the Son of Man will be lifted up, obviously talking about on the cross. And what did they have to do to be healed? When you think about it, well, those people got bit by a snake. There's just a few things involved. One thing is, you know that you're going to die. You know that you're sick. That's, I think that's where Nicodemus had the problem. I think he thought he was okay. All of his religion and his morality, I think he thought he was doing good. Jesus said, you're not, you're, you're not even going to see the kingdom of heaven if you don't get born again. You've got to recognize your sin, recognize your condition before God. So then when they recognize their condition, ouch, I've been bit by this snake, I'm getting sick, I'm going to die, what did they have to do? They had to believe that looking at a snake on a stick is going to work. So they believe it. So they go to wherever Moses is holding the, the stick, and they look up at it, expecting to be healed, and they're healed. Jesus takes that analogy and compares it to the cross. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. It's the same picture. And then in the book of Deuteronomy, we see the law. The law always points us to Christ. There's lots of rules, lots of commands. First thing we learn from the law, we can't keep it. We break them all the time. The book of Galatians tells us in chapter 3, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. You see, the law contained all the commands and it also contained the sacrifices. And so it pointed us to Christ until he got here. We recognize we try to keep the law. We recognize we can't keep the law. We go offer the sacrifice contained within the law. 
And when Christ comes, He is that sacrifice. And then also the prophecy. And we'll point to just this. In, uh, in Deuteronomy in chapter 18 and verse 15, Moses would say, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. So even Moses, as he delivered Israel out of Egypt, even Moses, as he would lead the children through the wilderness, even Moses was a picture of Jesus Christ. And this prophecy that God gives through Moses, God will raise up another servant like me, but he's the one. He's the one you'll listen to. And so we have the prophecy that's offered up in the books of Moses as well. Boy, you know what? As I was thumbing through once again, going through all the books of Moses through the, in preparation for this, Christ is everywhere. He really is everywhere. The whole thing, it just permeates Jesus Christ. It radiates Jesus Christ.